diversion, carnal lust, pride, ignorance, and indifference to subvert our faith and lead us away from God. Tonight we're going to study another method that he employs. To bring it to our attention, I ask you to go with me to the 18th chapter of 1 Kings and into the days of the prophet Elijah. This is in the 9th century B.C. Elijah worked for God in the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom, the ten tribes that separated under Rehoboam. The people at that time of Israel, that's the ten northern tribes, were faced with two gods who competed for their allegiance. One was the true God. We call him Jehovah. They pronounced it Yahweh. The other was the popular God of the Canaanites, Baal, or as they pronounced it, Baal. Yahweh was worshiped and served by the law of Moses, and the worship was centered in the temple in Jerusalem. Carefully chosen and trained Levitical priests oversaw that worship. Baal and his female consort, whose name was Ashtoreth, were worshiped in open air shrines upon hilltops and among groves of, straight, of sacred trees that were called Asherah. Their worship was exceedingly lewd. Its central idea was fertility, and it incorporated in its worship services prostitution, open prostitution. The common people by far went for Baal worship, as you could well imagine, because it was popular, because the God was visible. You could look at it. It was wood or stone, sometimes metal, and it involved that prostitution. And I need not emphasize how appealing that was, especially to the younger. But the prophets of Yahweh, especially Elijah, strongly condemned Baal worship with all of its appeal. And they called upon the people to forsake Baal and come back to their true God, Yahweh, who had brought them from Egypt to the point they were at at that time. So two ways opened up before these people. The way of God on the one hand and the way of Baal on the other. Each Israelite really had to make a choice. Spokesmen of God constantly were challenging them to make that decision and then to stand by it. In 1 Kings 18, Elijah had led the people to a showdown. A sacrifice was prepared on Mount Carmel for Baal and one for Yahweh. And each god was challenged to ignite his own sacrifice by fire that would come down from heaven. As the stage was set for this contest, 
Elijah spoke to the multitude who were present in this in these words that you can read there in verses 20 and 21 of chapter 18. How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord Yahweh is God, follow him. If Baal, then follow him. I call your attention to those words there. How long will you hesitate between two opinions? One opinion or way was that of following God. The other opinion or way was that of following Baal. In the Latin language, there is a word for this <clears throat> to express the situation <clears throat> Excuse me, that one must choose between two ways that are opposite but open to him. It is the word dubito, and that is the word that doubt directly comes from, dubito, doubt. And that brings into the open the strategy of Satan that we're going to be examining in this lesson tonight. He creates doubt within us by opening up a second way to compete with whatever way God has offered to us. And that one is always the best then Satan paints his way as the better way with strong appeals. He says it's easier, it's shorter and more direct, it's quicker, it's more pleasant, and it leads to much better rewards. With two choices open, we're made to consider both of them and judge which one we will choose. The effort and the time that is pondered in doing it is what we call doubt. Doubt is the state of mind in which we hesitate before two contradictory conclusions. When we lack seemingly significant evidence to form, uh, that is to choose either one of them with very much ease or confidence. Actually, however, the the evidence is always there if we will look for it and recognize it to persuade us that God's way is the better one, no, the best one. But for many reasons, it's harder to recognize it. And it doesn't seem conclusive at first. Its rewards are not usually immediate. Very often, they're not visible and they materialize only gradually. But as I said earlier, the way of Satan is easier. It's shorter and more direct. It's quicker. It's more pleasant. And it leads to rewards that you can see and feel right now. You don't have to wait for them. And folks, that decides the issue for the majority of people. They swallow what Satan offers to them without looking at it, thinking about it, or trying to ascertain what it would lead to. The final outcome, however, always proves the superiority of God's way. It's permanent, and it keeps on improving your life as long as you hold to it. 
Satan's way is temporary. And the good and the easy and all that at the beginning wears off quickly. And then it just leads to misery and destruction. And that's the way many people's lives end when they started in their younger years just going for what was shorter, easier, and more pleasant. Satan's use of doubt to cause Eve to sin back in the beginning, Genesis 3, is quite evident. God had told her and Adam that they, were to, that they could eat of any tree of that garden they wanted to, except one. We don't know how many trees there were. There's probably a lot of them. But one of them they had to leave alone. Eve heard that. She understood it. Satan knew it too. But he seized it as the opportunity to lead Eve astray. She could eat of the forbidden tree, he told her, and really would not die. God was just trying to scare her away from it. He said, or inferred, God is selfishly withholding something from you that is really good for you. Why would you do let that happen? What he was withholding, Satan said, it was wisdom, the knowledge of good and evil, that if you have that, you'll become just like God. And he had her to notice by looking at it and thinking about it, how beautiful that tree was and how good that fruit on it looked. The text then says that she stood and she considered that tree and she thought about how good it would be to eat of it and in doing so, to become like God. We don't know how long that pondering went on, but it was the machinery of doubt working in her mind. The gears were turning. She knew what God had forbidden. He had made it clear. And she was told the harm that would follow if she disobeyed it, that she would die. And she thought, but then she thought about the opposite to that that Satan had proposed to her. Satan's proposal required a decision, and she thought about it for a while, but she kept looking back at that tree, how beautiful it looked, how appealing the fruit on it looked, and how good it would be to be up on God's level, to become like God, because Satan's way was easy all she had to do was pick something and eat. And because it was immediate, the tree was right there in front of her. And because it was very pleasant, when she bit into it, it would really taste good. She thought, I'm going to eat of it. And she ate of it. To have chosen God's way required self-restraint, self-control. And it would not bring immediate pleasure and satisfaction. And so to Eve, it seemed like that was the weaker of the two choices. And that's just the way Satan wants you to see it in our cases. So by the instant advantages of doubting, Satan corrupted our original mother. Brethren, what we see in this illustration is continuously repeated among mankind all 
day, every day, everywhere, including you and me. Rarely do we exclude alternatives to God's will when they uh, are laid out uh, or when we see them. And, but yet God's will is very clear to us in Scripture. We don't have to wonder about that. It's very clear to us. In the various details of life, God has told us what to do and what to leave alone. But nearly every time we come to a place where we have to do that or make a decision, we see other things that are so attractive. When God has said, do this, we see another way open. Or when God says, don't do this, we see another way open. What way? <laughs> a way that's easier than what God has said. A way that's shorter and more direct than what God has said. A way that's easier than what God has said. A way that is more pleasant than what he has said. And a way that leads to rewards that you can see and feel and experience not right now, not tomorrow, not next year, but right now, then we're confronted with doubt. May we compromise God's instructions to exploit those advantages that are appealing to us? Will God excuse us because we say, hey, this is society practice. This is the norm in that I'm living in. Will God excuse us because we think, well, it makes more sense to do that than it does this that you've said? Or will God excuse us because we say, hey, it's a whole lot easier to do this. I'll feel a lot better if I do that <clears throat> other than what God has said. And folks, each of us are confronted by these choices many times every day. You've made them today, I've made them today in what we say, in what we do, in what, where we go, in how we dress, in how we think, how we drink, think and drink, what entertainment we choose, and on and on and on to the details of life. And to a large extent, we decide, sadly, that compromising God's instructions are permissible, that God will allow it if we don't go too far and don't grow accustomed to it. Few dare challenge them or, or, or question them because they know if they do, society is going to ostracize them in a second for being radical. Just go on Facebook where there's a discussion going on and take God's decision on the discussion and folks, you're going to be followed by a hundred comments that are going to eat you alive. That's the world we're living in. Satan's strategy of doubt works so easily and so effectively upon us because the immediate benefits of what he offers are just too difficult for so many to deny. We can see and feel the benefits of the way that's not God's at once. We can reap the benefits, those initial ones that are offered, right at the moment 
and we really like that. I'll do it today and worry about it tomorrow. Folks, when I was teaching in public school in Nashville 25 years, I heard discussions by men who, and women who were Christians about going somewhere and doing something that was wrong. And you know what I heard so many of them say? I'll do it Friday night and Saturday, and then I'll go forward Sunday morning and repent of it, and everything will be all right. Satan's benefits, however, though practically instant and so pleasurable, do not last very long. Then the kickback of sin sets in, and disadvantages begin to build and eventually produce misery and broken lives. And that's what life is full of, misery and broken lives. The fruit of that tree in the garden tasted so good it was very pleasant in every way. And Adam and Eve ate of it. They wanted that. But then some things happened they didn't want that were terrible for, uh, to them. And eating the pleasure of eating that fruit didn't even begin to outweigh what they lost. God withdrew from them. He kicked them out of the Garden of Eden and put a special angel there to guard it so they couldn't sneak back in. Now men had to go out into the fields and work hard, working themselves to fatigue, sweating in the hot sun, fighting briars and weeds and pests to make a living for their family. And for women, childbirth became painful. And for men and women and all, Death became a reality. Choosing God's way is slower. I admit it. It doesn't often bring uh, rewards or benefits that are instant and wonderful. Sometimes it does, but a great deal of the time it doesn't. But folks, here is the reality of it. God's benefits are real. They do come. And once they are in place, they don't fade away. They last forever unless you turn away from them. Because of our impatience for instant gratification, I want it now. And because of our urge to feel good and to enjoy, enjoy life's attraction, finds, uh, Satan finds it so very easy to plant doubt in our minds. Then rationalization sets in to lead us to accept his alternative way. Yes, I know that God says this, but, but if I choose this other way, we've got this factor and that factor and another factor, and these things finally work together to good, so it makes it okay to do it after all. How much like Eve we are. At Satan's bidding, she looked at that forbidden tree she saw that it was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that it was desirable to make one wise. You know, we want shortcuts to wisdom. When I was teaching math, especially some of the higher and harder courses, uh, there were students, they were facetious, but they said, Mr. Whitehead said, don't you have a magic pencil that you use that I can put against my head 
and have the knowledge flow into it, and then I can pass your test. <laughs> Many was the student that said that. I'm not making that up. What to Eve was a tree with fruit is to us anything that God has forbidden but looks good and seems a delight and promises to be desirable. The world is full of such things, and Satan <laughs> finds it very easy to urge us, pay attention to them, go for it, just do it. Aren't that, isn't that what advertising tells us? In the New Testament, doubt is employed in one of two ways. First, it may indicate the inability to comprehend a situation. And that, of course, causes hesitancy to act. And it may or may not be sinful. Sometimes it's, it's necessary and very important. And to decide which, initial doubt is a good thing. People, activities, and situations in our sinful world do not always appear uh, as what they really are. Sin usually covers it over with a veneer of righteousness and purity and goodness. And we look at that and don't look just beyond it to see what the reality is. But it's only a veneer, a thin covering that acts as a bait to attract the imprudent. The New Testament often refers to it as a stumbling block Two, three weeks ago, I talked about that. In the original language, it's pronounced skandalon. Our word scandal comes from it. The word actually refers to a trigger in a trap that holds the bait. And when an animal seizes the bait, it springs the trigger and traps that little beast. And then it's done for. Folks, doubt is good when it cautions you, don't go for the bait. Determine what is it's connected to. The bait that Satan uses to lure us into traps in daily life. And folks, they're set around us all the time. The appeal of the bait is so strong that many times that bait looks so good that we defy caution. We seize it. And then we're trapped in sin. The bait might be a lot of different things. Very often it's a fashion of society, a style of clothing, a popular word or expression. Folks, there's so many words and expressions used today that when I was a teenager, I would have gotten a royal whipping for it if I had used the word, but I hear those words used in church today. Could be an activity could be an ingestible subject, a substance, anything appealing, could be anything. Such things constantly rise up in our culture and they quickly become popular. Our Lord wants us to look upon innovations with doubt and not adopt them without carefully judging. In fact, that is what we're specifically told. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 21-22, examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Doubt only enables us 
or can enable us to take the time and to use the necessary caution to determine whether a thing is from Satan, bait just to trap you, or something innocent that God has put here to bless us. We read in Proverbs 22 and verse 3, the prudent sees the evil and hides himself, but the naive go on and are punished for it. The prudent are those who use beneficial doubt to discern whether something is good or just evil in disguise. The naive are those who cannot wait to possess something, to have that fun that's appealing, to be popular, to be a part of the in crowd and go with the flow. So without discernment, they seize whatever it is that's attracting. And so often, it's Satan's bait that springs that trap of sin upon them. I said that in the New Testament, doubt is usually employed in one of two ways. The first is the beneficial caution, uh, a doubt of caution that enables us to discern the presence of good and evil, what we were just talking about. Now, the second way is doubt that is a deliberate wavering of judgment which leads to a lack of conviction and often to disbelief or skepticism. There are people who have the conviction that life is entirely material and they are resistant to the idea that there might be something in spiritual reality outside of the material world we live in but that has a very real effect or influence upon us here. For example, specific, Dr. Irvine Yalome, an influential psychotherapist in California who wrote a book entitled Staring at the Sun. Listen to what he says on verse on page 187, quote, my work is rooted in a secular existential worldview that rejects supernatural beliefs. Orthodox religious views based on irrational ideas such as miracles have always perplexed me. I am personally incapable of believing in something that defies the laws of nature. And of course, a miracle does that. This is deliberate doubt this man is presenting. And it was formed very early in his life for he said that he had always been perplexed by reports of miracles which he says are irrational. That means don't make sense. This hardened doubt led him into skepticism, if not atheism, though he doesn't say that he's one. And as a man of great eminence in his profession, he has embedded his doubt in the lives or minds of hundreds of patients over the years in his practice and in students in his university classes. And folks, you can access him on YouTube if you want to sample it. I've done that. The 18th century French philosopher Voltaire, who still has great influence in academic circles, went further than Dr. Yalom. He declared, quote, 
even if a miracle should be wrought in the open marketplace before a thousand sober-minded witnesses, I should rather distrust my senses than admit a miracle. That is, he says, I won't accept one if it's right in front of my eyes and I can't deny it. Voltaire was a confirmed atheist. He spent his career ranting against the existence of God. He lived back in the later 1700s. He ridiculed the Bible constantly. He belittled people of faith. He began, as every atheist and infidel does, with the bias that there cannot be a God and that the physical world that we're here in is all there is. But folks, did you know that is really a faith system? Just as much as uh, religion is, atheism hates religion. But it's a faith system too. It affirms some things and denies other things. That's what a faith system does. This sneering, arrogant philosopher let himself be captured by Satan's instrument of doubt. Then he became, for uh, several decades that he lived, the devil's advocate to persuade a multitude of people over the past years to doubt themselves also into infidelity. Folks, when I talk to you about something like this, I'm not telling you what I've read, what somebody else said. I've read Voltaire. When he said he would rather distrust his senses than admit a miracle, Voltaire was excluding the empirical method upon which science is based. And folks, that is as far as doubt can lead atheism. Unbelief always finds a way to, to uh, refuse to accept the truth. No matter what kind of evidence you can offer, the miracles of Jesus were certainly valid evidence. They were undeniable. And his opponents at that time even that saw them could not deny them and even confess that they knew they were miracles and still they opposed it. They had sold their souls to the devil. For in John 8 and verse 44, Jesus told them, you are of your father the devil and you want to do the desires of your father. When Jesus performed an irrefutable miracle right in front of their faces, they always said, do another one that's greater. And if he did, which he didn't, they would have said, do another one that's greater than that. They discredited every previous miracle for the next one that was greater. They weren't being led to belief or acceptance at all. And folks, this applies to all modern doubt that rejects the testimony of the biblical record regarding the reality of miracles and the confirmation of the truth that has been taught by Christ. I've long been impressed by the statement of the 19th century German scholar Arthur Schopenhauer in his book, The World as Will and Idea. And again, folks, I'm not telling you what I've read that somebody else said. I've read Schopenhauer. 
In this book, he refutes the premises from which the haughty Voltaire spewed forth venom upon faith and miracles. He wrote, quote, listen to this carefully. It's probably thinking you've never thought before. Quote, we do not want a thing because we have found reasons for it. We find reasons for it because we want it. We even elaborate philosophies to cloak our desires. Nothing is more provoking when you are arguing with a man with reasons and explanations and taking all pains to convince him than to discover at the last that he does not want to understand. No one ever convinced anyone by logic. I don't know if I agree with that 100% or not, but he's got a good point. He says, to convince a man, you must appeal to his self-interest, his desires, his own will, end of quote. Satan appeals to our self-interest, and he encourages the hardened will by using this tool of doubt. He says, trust in your own wisdom and deny anything that challenges it. If something doesn't make sense to you, rub it out as being not acceptable. In John 8, 43, Jesus said to his opponents, why do you not understand what I'm saying to you? Then he said, it is because you do not hear my word. He did not mean they weren't hearing it with their ears like I don't hear if I take my hearing aids off and don't hear too much if I've got them in. What he really meant was, their minds wasn't open, weren't open to receive what he was saying. He made the same point in the parable of the sower. In Matthew 13, verse 19, he said, When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart, this is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. When in ignorance of the truth, when it is first presented to you, it's probable that there's a lot of it you will not understand, and you will reserve acceptance with natural doubt. That's just the way it works. But you can be sure that Satan is watching, and he's going to encourage you to follow the doubt, and he will use it to stop you from the attempt to learn more, to gain more understanding, to be persuaded by what you're seeing and accept it as the truth. In John 8, 44, Jesus said that, Jesus, that Satan does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. As there is no truth in him, it is his mission to see that there's no truth in us either. So he'll plant doubt, he'll nurture it, he'll feed it, he will tend it as long as you let him. And the longer doubt goes on, the greater it grows and the harder it becomes. Returning to Schopenhauer's declaration, a person comes to believe or reject a proposition because of his will. That is because of his own accumulation of perception, experience, and beliefs that he grew uh, up in. 
It's as Oliver Cromwell, the great English leader in the mid-1600s, said about the Scottish people with whom he had had a lot of problems, quote, it is impossible for them to conceive the notion that they could be wrong, end of quote. There are people who will die and be lost before they will admit that their faith is wrongly based and welcome the clarity and wholesomeness of the truth and be saved. They will go right on into the grave before they will change their mind even if it's been shown to them convincingly they're wrong. And so it was with the chief priests and the elders of Israel to whom Jesus preached. He was God in the flesh. And he spoke only the words that he brought down from heaven. And yet those spiteful leaders of Israel would not believe him, believe him or what he said. They doubted stubbornly, deliberately, defiantly until their doubt grew into a hardened rejection that was so intense they said, let's kill him and get rid of him. Satan put that doubt into their minds. Why? Because they led him and then they welcomed it. And if unchecked, doubt will progress to rejection. Romans 14, 23 says this, he who doubts is condemned because it is not from faith and whatsoever is not from faith is sin. The human will, folks, is very, very strong. And if a person sets his will not to believe something, he will always find whatever he can that to him is evidence and he'll assemble it in an argument to confirm his own doubt and unbelief. He's yielded his mind to the devil. The will is therefore primary and evidence is secondary. It shouldn't be that way, but that's the way it is. We make reality whatever we want it to be. Every culture has its own construction of reality based not upon objective evidence, but upon the subjective will. We have a view of reality in America. That in China is very different from us. That in India is different from both of them, and so on. We won't accept theirs. They say it's wrong, and we won't listen to them. They won't accept ours because they say it's wrong, and they won't listen to us. Folks, that's Satan's devious product of doubt. Reality cannot be constructed by man except in his own weak and corrupt mind. Folks, reality is external to us and to our minds and thinking. God has made it that way. Our construction of reality dies when we die. We take it with us. Only reality as it is from God transcends all human life and will last right on into eternity.